thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Welcome to Naked Reflections, brought to you from the Wolf Institute. I'm Ed Kessler, and each week I'll be taking an in-depth look at the stories reported by our friends over at the Naked Scientists. What does the latest scientific stuff mean for the rest of us? Stay with us and find out. Welcome to Naked Reflections. When it comes to questions of gender, both the religious and scientific establishments have some hard questions to ask of themselves. In the Abrahamic traditions, that's Judaism, Christianity and Islam, God is nearly always referred to with a male pronoun, though presumably God has no gender. In the biblical collection of sensual psalms called the Song of Songs, God is depicted as the bridegroom marrying the bride. In the New Testament, Jesus teaches his disciples to pray to God, the Father. And patriarchy in Islam is reinforced by passages such as, men are the protectors and maintainers of women. We're talking about gender and society this week. Things aren't likely to get any easier. And I haven't even mentioned controversy over trans rights. I suspect there's more agreement across different religions than among co-religionists when it comes to the more traditional and observant, as opposed to liberal and progressive. To come to the world of science, the experience of Beatrix Potter provides a cautionary tale. Before she found fame as a children's author, she submitted a groundbreaking paper on botany, to the Linnean Society. Despite its obvious merits, she was not allowed to present it because she was a woman. It was read by a man, and very badly. Plus change, you might say. Here's Kayleen O'Connor explaining how gender bias is also ingrained among scientists. The first primatologists studied male primates because they were men, and then when women joined the field, they studied the female primates and learned all these other things about it. So they made these kind of special discoveries motivated by their personal identities. Kayleen O'Connor on The Naked Scientist Show, Can Science Mavericks Save the World? And coming close to saying that almost by definition, women scientists have been mavericks. 
With me to discuss the seemingly eternally contentious subject of gender and gender bias are a woman and a man. Dr. Leah Tarragon-Zeller, joining us from the Hebrew University of Jerusalem and former research fellow at the Wolf Institute. And the Malaysian songwriter and human rights activist Dr. Shannon Shah from the University of London. It seems to me that all religions, but let's focus on the Abrahamic faiths, face difficulty with gender. Leah, do you agree? And how do you square your work on gender equality with readings of mainstream Jewish texts? I wanted to just start off by saying that gender is a really salient feature of religion. In many parts of the world and in many religious traditions, cultural and religious continuity are really deeply connected to gendered and sexual practices. To give some examples, think about abortion, contraception, same-sex marriage, sexual violence, things like the division of labor in the home, leadership ideals, all of these things are really influenced by religious belief, praxis, um, and political affiliation. So because gender and religion intersect on such a basic level, I'm really interested in understanding them together. I think theology is super relevant because theology and our ideas about the divine dictate the way we understand everything around us, especially from a religious perspective. And I guess what I'd like to offer is a recent conversation that my son had with a few of his friends. They were trying to figure out if girls are better than boys. And one friend said that boys are best because God is male and God is in charge. So therefore, men should be in charge. And then a girl said to him, no, girls are the best because this is in a very Jewish context, because the Shabbat, the Sabbath is female. And my lovely son came into the conversation and said, you know, I've heard that God may be both male and female, and that means that everybody should be equal. And I bring that here just to give a very obvious conversation between eight-year-olds to teach us about the power of theology and how deep that goes. Out of the mouth of babes. I love that, Leah. And just to build on that as well, I think theology is so important because, you know, from a Muslim perspective, God is beyond gender, right? And that's what we're all taught. But as you pointed out, Ed, there are verses in the Quran that are clearly written with a male audience in mind. So this non-gendered God for Muslim seems to stand in for, you know, very conveniently for every single patriarchal heteronormative interest there is in society. So how do we work with that as Muslims? And I think that's been a question that's been asked throughout the history of Islam, but it still needs to be asked and it still needs to be challenged. And I'd like to think of this in terms of overlapping circles, like a Venn diagram. And this is both in my research on Islam, gender and sexuality, and also in my own life, because, you know, I identify as someone who is gay and Muslim. So I think on one level, there's the circle of historically patriarchal and heteronormative interpretations of texts, legal rulings and practices within Muslim communities. And let's face it, this has happened in all other religious communities throughout history as well. 
So that's one circle. But in this Venn diagram, there's another circle, you know, which is the homophobia, transphobia, let's say, that was transported or exported and imposed upon Muslim communities in many parts of the world through colonial encounters, through colonial violence, especially in British colonies, you know, and the imposition of sodomy laws and marriage and divorce regulations and so on. So I think it's this complex interaction of colonial violence, you know, quite modern Victorian mores, actually. I mean, the term homosexuality is a modern invention, right? There was race science, you know, that was spread out throughout the empire. But the Muslim anti-colonial responses also took quite patriarchal and heteronormative forms. And this is what we see being played out in post-colonial Muslim nation states, you know, but in a lot of Muslim states, this comes with a package of other issues like corruption, lack of democracy, authoritarian violence, military interference by Western powers and so on. And I think, you know, just to build on what Leah has said, gender and sexuality are also geopolitical issues. So in this sense, I think there's a lot of homophobia within Muslim societies that's not actually about what's in the Islamic text per se. There's stuff there, as you've identified, but there's actually not very much. There's a lot more sort of political maneuvering of religious homophobia to sort of support particular kinds of power systems in different states. I really loved what you said about political maneuvering, which is what I wrote down to myself as you were speaking because I think that one of the things that really strike me about all this is that one of the kind of famous Jewish feminists that I have learned a lot from, Blue Greenberg, said, when there's a rabbinic will, there's a rabbinic way. And what she was saying is that when we want to change a text, when we want to offer a creative interpretation of it, there's a lot of potential when you're in the world of interpretation. And I have spent a lot of time working on the ways both women and rabbinic leaders interpret texts about gender and sexuality. I think what people thought was very provocative about what she was saying is that rabbis can do much more than they sometimes choose to. And that's kind of what I wanted to bring into this conversation as you were speaking, Shannon, because my feeling is that it's very similar in the Muslim context, both from my own experience and from the research that I do. I think that while I was speaking, I was thinking a little bit about divorce, for example, and a divorce refusal. Um, in Hebrew, it's called get refusal. And you can see how there is inequality in terms of the way a Jewish woman and man can get divorced. And I know that it's similar um, in the Muslim context. And it's really amazing to see how far people might go to allow a man whose wife does not want to divorce him, but that a woman still has to go through much more than that. And not only in the context of divorce, if we think about religious practice, if we think about leading prayers in a synagogue or in a mosque, you can see that there are ways to read texts in more egalitarian ways, and you can choose whether to go for that or not. I agree, Leah, that there's lots of parallels um, in Muslim history and Muslim context as well. I think one definitely is in relation to marriage and divorce and property ownership. I mean, I come from Malaysia, and I know for a fact that when Islam spread in the Malay archipelago, the kinds of rulings that Islamic jurists and thinkers came up with also relied on their assessment of what was already there, what sort of customary practices were already there. And in the Malay archipelago, relationships between men and women were much more bilateral. 
So there were much more progressive ideas about women's property ownership and independence in marriage and childbearing and so on as well, right? So this is the concept of adat or urf in Islamic law in Malaysia and other parts of the Malay archipelago. But in other spheres of lawmaking in Islam as well, there have been times when jurists had a lot of appetite to innovate or introduce new things without thinking, oh, we're doing you know, something new with a text. I mean, something we can see now is with Islamic banking and Islamic finance, where there is so much innovation. There is so much that wasn't there in the classical text that people are happy to innovate on. But because of political considerations, when it comes to gender and sexuality, there is not that kind of bravery or willingness to innovate and think of new solutions. Let's go specifically to some of the issues about homophobia and gay issues, which is an area I know that you're particularly concerned about, Shannon. Is there any progress? Is there any development? You make the comparison with a Sharia-compliant finance where there's been massive transformation, but less so on, in these other areas of sexual orientation. I think there are many ways to answer this question, but the direction I'd like to take is to sort of question this notion of what we mean by progress. Because as I've alluded to before, I think gender and sexuality have been a fault line in the politics of the colonial encounter between Western Christendom and the Muslim world. And there was a time when, let's say, European colonialists in the Victorian era would have thought Muslims were barbaric because they were too sexually licentious. You know, Victorians would go to the Middle East and other parts of the Muslim world and think these people are savage because they practice sodomy and we don't. So we are more progressive because we actually outlaw things like homosexuality and they don't. And then through the long 19th century, suddenly we now find in Muslim societies this kind of very internalized and heightened political homophobia. And the recent gains that have been made in the West with LGBT rights and same-sex marriage are now used as ideological tools to say, well, we are more progressive now because we recognize LGBT rights and same-sex marriage, and they don't. What's important to recognize is that even within Muslim societies, and I'm not, I'm not claiming that these are majority strains of thought, but for centuries and centuries, even in pre-modern times, there have been Muslims who've questioned, well, why do we need to be so harsh about people who don't conform to gender norms, don't conform to certain kinds of relationship ideals. It's always there in the text, right? It's just whether it actually gained ascendancy in the larger political state-building processes, even in pre-modern Muslim societies. Shannon, are these the sorts of topics you explore in your play, Aircon? So I wrote a play which was staged first in June 2008, and it was an interesting time for it to be staged in Malaysia at that time, because, you know, in the history of Malaysia, we have someone who's still active in politics, Anwar Ibrahim, who was sacked in 98 on charges of corruption and sodomy, and has been in jail a couple of times because these politically motivated um, accusations that keep haunting him and, you know, that are used to discredit him. And this is what I mean when I say that a lot of homophobia in Malaysia is very politically directed. This is a law that has been rarely applied. It has been applied most to one individual, this man, because he's a political threat to the status quo. So we staged this play, which is about homophobic bullying and transphobic 
violence in a boys' school in Malaysia. It was staged around the time when Anwar was beset with a second set of sodomy allegations. You know, he was trying to make a political comeback and suddenly these accusations came out. And we were quite worried because this play explores how teachers and the education system and the religious education system in Malaysia seem to sanction toxic masculinity, homophobic and transphobic violence and misogyny and also racism and religious fundamentalism. So I thought as the playwright, oh my God, this play is going to be shut down. I'm going to get into so much trouble, especially with the controversy surrounding Anwar at that time. The play sold out. We had to turn people away at the door. And the reviewers who came, and bear in mind this time, the press in Malaysia was so politically controlled. But even Malay-speaking Muslim reviewers who came to watch the play wrote very intelligent, sensitive reviews of it, you know, without giving too much away, protecting us, but also telling people, you have to watch this, it's really good. It quickly became a classic. And lots of people who came to watch it weren't the traditional class of theatre goers in Malaysia, urban, English-speaking, middle class. There were lots of Malay-speaking, younger, maybe from working-class families, type of people who were coming to watch this. The audience was also quite multiracial. And I think in my experience, this shows me that sometimes the public is way ahead of the curve when it comes to gender and sexuality. This is Naked Reflections with me, Ed Kessler. My guests, Leah Taragonzella and Shannon Shah, are discussing the matter of gender. Unhappily, gender bias is not restricted to one gender. In that sense, it does not suffer itself from gender bias. Here's Marcus Helmer talking about the policy of peer review in scientific journals. It seems that this same gender preference is much more widespread among male editors, whereas for female editors, it appears to be restricted to relatively few who are then highly preferential. Marcus Helmer speaking on The Naked Scientist Show, Boosting Your Intellect. Leah, with your anthropologist's hat on, can you explain why gender bias and misogyny seem to be so deeply ingrained in our societies? I am not really sure that I know how to answer the why question. I think that anthropologists are much better at showing how. So I don't have an answer for why, but I think that one of the remarkable and startling questions about gender and gender bias is how long we've been fighting for this and how much it's still everywhere. It sounds like neither of you want to focus too much on the past, but really on the present and how we move forward. So, Shannon, what steps do we need to take? This is not an original idea for me, I think. People like Foucault have talked about this. You know, the power of being able to reproduce and what reproduction means, you know, and population control. And I think the minute we start counting people and sorting them out according to gender or race or ethnicity or religion, all these are political management tactics, right? They come together with the ways in which different people can get different resources from the people who have control over those resources. And I think this is where the conflict between certain religious rulings and certain expressions of gender and sexuality 
become so potent because these are these are not just material resources, these are symbolic resources, and these are resources that relate to our very desires, you know, our very pleasures, what gives us meaning, what gives us joy in our life. And the sexual act, let's face it, is extremely joyful and enjoyable. So who gets to control that? And what are the consequences of that, right? So for me, it's about not just how gender and sexuality are policed or managed in religious spheres, but also how they get policed and managed in secular spheres, because patriarchy and heteronormativity are pervasive in society. As Leah said, it's not just in religious settings that we're up against this now. But I think this is where the politics comes into it. We have these contests that are staged among certain political ideologues that paint religion a certain way in regard to gender and sexuality and paint secular liberal spaces in another way. And I think this kind of binary view is too simplistic because I think in Leah's and my work, you can see that in religious settings, there are people who resist. There are people who try very hard, like Leah said, you know, to demonstrate courage. And they're not always motivated by secular liberal ideas. Some some of them are motivated by very religious ideas of justice, right? Just as we find in secular liberal spaces, they are not feminist utopias. <laughs> not all of them are feminist or LGBTQ utopias. There's still a lot of damage that gets done in those circles, right? So I think a more productive conversation will be between the people who are striving for gender and sexual justice, wherever they are, whether they're in religious settings or secular settings, how do we talk to each other? How do we learn from each other? And, you know, have frank discussions about our beliefs. But as Leah said, to actually do something to move forward, to try and achieve justice now that's meaningful to people in their own lived contexts. Being an ethnographer and being an anthropologist means that I've spent a lot of my life collecting stories and experiences from a very diverse crowd. And I don't think that there's one true right way to be a feminist or to to move forward with these things. And there's a lot of pinpointing at we're doing it right. You guys are doing a bad job. This is the right way to do it. This is the bad way to do it. And I just want to echo what you said, Shannon, about learning from each other, which I think is super, super important. I remember one of the first studies that I did was in Israel with a group of ultra-Orthodox teenagers. And I was really interested in understanding the way they are socialized and the way they resist ideals about modesty. And what I found is that, you know, even though I was actually part of an ethnography of this modesty movement, and they were super excited about wearing long dresses and long skirts. And on the outside, they were doing things that were just showing us how modest they want to be. But using a Foucauldian perspective and Saba Mahmoud, I saw what they were doing as an act of resistance to a world in which the men control religiosity. And they were looking for their own way to be religious. And they were doing it through modesty. So if you look at their own perspective, they were putting forward something that you might say is very feminist. And you also might say the opposite. So I think that it's really important to look at communal ways in which women and men are imagining more diverse futures for themselves without constantly judging them based on our own ruler of what is feminist and what is not. As Leah was talking, I just kept thinking about young Muslim women in South London who are wearing the niqab now. And in 
very simplistic terms in the mass media, this is portrayed as another example of how Islam oppresses women. And I'm not denying the fact that in many Muslim states, women's dress is used as a way to inflict lots of violence on women's bodies, right? Like I've seen this happen in Malaysia. We see this happen in nations like Saudi Arabia. But depending on the context, I think there's a marvelous ethnography of niqab wearing Salafi women in South London written by an anthropologist, my friend, Dr. Annabelle Ng, that talks about how this wearing a niqab is actually an act of agency as well. As Leah says, it's about finding themselves. I mean, these are women who are Black and working class and Muslim in London, living in a particular context and finding their way to negotiate with parents that they might have a difficult relationship with, the Muslim men around them that they have difficult relationships with, white society, middle-class society. And so wearing a niqab becomes an act of resistance for a lot of them. It becomes an act of identity making. They think about that and it becomes a choice. And it takes a lot of courage to do that, especially in the country like the UK. And again, like Leah says, there are different ways to think about this. And we can't say that, oh, it's only an act of liberation. But we need to recognize that this does challenge, you know, dominant views of what is feminist, what is liberty, what are liberal values, right? Shannon, the word that you used that really resonated with me was agency. It's having that agency to decide how I want to lead my life, how I want to dress, how I want to act, what my sexual orientation is in a field that is incredibly nuanced and complex. And I just wonder... If that's true, and it's good to see you nodding there, how might we specifically apply it in conversation with those who are, for one reason or another, whether it's cultural or religious or diametrically opposed to the issues that we're we're talking about in terms of equality, egalitarianism and so on? I'll come to that by building on what Leah said, because when you asked me about agency, I immediately thought of another word in my head, which was relationships or relationship. And maybe a good segue is to talk about my work. So I did an ethnographic study of the experiences of gay Muslims in Malaysia and Britain. And I wanted to compare the experiences of being gay and Muslim in a context where Islam was the majority religion and the state religion, and where Islam is a minority religion, right? And how my gay Muslim participants were making sense of their sexual and religious identity and their religious commitment as well, and their religious affiliation. And the people that I spoke to, the people that I met and befriended, you know, lots of them wanted change within Islam, within Muslim communities, but they didn't necessarily want to ditch Islam. They wanted to be better Muslims, but they wanted to be better Muslims who were authentically gay as well, right? And who were able to have relationships that fulfilled them. And... They also wanted to be able to talk to their families and Muslim communities. They didn't just want to throw them under the bus. So I think with agency, we have to think about what constrains it. And relationships do constrain agency if you think about it in a certain way. But maybe we need to rethink what we mean by individual agency as well. I'm reminded by the African concept of Ubuntu, which is also about being an individual, but in a way that I am because you are. We're all connected. It's not that we're not individuals, but we're individuals who are connected to each other. We're not self-contained vessels that can do anything we want. The relationships we have with each other matter. 
So in that sense, when I speak to Muslims who I think are diametrically opposed to what I believe in, I get a surprise sometimes. The people who might think would be so opposed to talking to me about what I believe, what I stand for, are actually much more open when they realize that as a Muslim, I'm not going to throw them under the bus. And sometimes the most productive conversations I have are with Muslims that I think of as the most pious and traditional But because we have this way of connecting, because they know that I have certain Muslim values that I carry with me, that's how we build on that common ground. I think it's a beautiful answer, if I may say. And I also think that when we look at the understandings of religious groups as well, we can see that ideas about gender and sexuality are also very powerful tools to think about righteousness and righteousness that is performed through very pure, again, pure with parentheses, pure notions of what it means to be a woman, what it means to be a man. And heterosexuality is the epitome of pure godliness. And I think that's important to have on the table, that that's a very central axis for performing that. There we must end this dialogue. Thanks to my guests, Leah Terra-Gonzala and Shadon Shah. And thanks to you two for listening. If you enjoy this podcast, why not look at our back catalogue of discussions? It's quite a resource. You may also want to have a listen to other podcasts from the Wolf Institute or from our friends at The Naked Scientists. I'll be back next week with more bracing discussion and some new guests. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.